Welcome to Conversations with All of Us, the show that explores the evolving world of health research and the role we can have in creating a healthier future for generations to come. I'm your host, Cheryl McLeod, Community Engagement and Communications Manager for All of Us New England at Boston Medical Center. Today, we're talking about the importance of trust within health research and healthcare systems. Joining me are Dr. Cynthia So Amra and Dr. Thea James. Welcome. Patient and community trust in healthcare systems is key to good health and can boost participation in medical research. Having trusting relationships with providers and health systems can not only improve the patient experience and health outcomes, it can help reduce health disparities and advance research to benefit all. According to a 2020 article published by the Journal of the American Medical Association, trust in healthcare has declined over the past half century. Many factors contribute to the decline in trust, such as historical instances of mistreatments, structural inequities, and medical misinformation. Trust in healthcare is even lower among racially and ethnically diverse communities who've experienced barriers to healthcare access as well as healthcare disparities. So here to walk us through medical trust and the importance of it are Dr. Cynthia So Amra and Dr. Thea James. Dr. Cynthia So Amra is an internist practicing primary care at Brookside Community Health Center in Jamaica Plain. She serves as medical director for Brookside, instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and regional medical director for Brigham and Women's Primary Care. She divides her time between caring for a largely Spanish-speaking and immigrant patient population and working with the teams at Brookside and Brigham to manage operations and provide equitable, focused health care to her patients and community. Dr. Thea James is Vice President of Mission, Associate Chief Medical Officer, and Co-Executive Director of the Health Equity Accelerator at Boston Medical Center. She's also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Director of the Violence Intervention Advocacy Program. Dr. James works with BMC caregivers and builds BMC's relationships and strategic alliances with local, state, and national partners to meet the full spectrum of essentials that enables patients and communities to thrive. We really appreciate you joining us today. So my first question for you both, what do we mean by the word trust when we're referring to healthcare systems and health research? Dr. Cynthia, let's start with you. Trust is so key to everything we do in healthcare and health research. Trust allows our patients to show up, to walk in the building, to entrust us with the most personal details about their lives and their families, to allow us to care for them at their most vulnerable times. In primary care, trust allows us to get to know our patients over time so that we can better tailor our recommendations to the person in front of us. This trust allows us to work together when things may be difficult or things may not work out as planned. Trust allows a back and forth. To open up to your provider requires trust. To accept a recommendation requires trust. To be open to receiving a medication or a vaccine requires trust. Imagine any other situation where you might walk into a building, meet someone for the first time, undress yourself, discuss the most intimate details of your life, and let a stranger jab a needle into your arm. It's unheard of. And yet we do it every day in healthcare. Trust really cannot be taken for granted. Maybe we will tell people about that example. They might rethink they're going <laughs> to a doctor. You know, it's a good, good point. Dr. Theodore, is there anything you'd like to add or, or comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I need to assess some context, though. I mean, I'm, in, uh, I'm an ER doctor by training. 
And uh, I work in the largest safety net hospital in New England, which means that uh, more than 80% of our patients live out or below the federal poverty line. More than 80% are publicly insured, with uh, a majority being Medicaid. We are, our healthcare system and ACO is like accountable care organization, uh, which means we are responsible for the outcomes of our patients' care. We are actually 40% of Massachusetts Medicaid. It sort of paints a bit of a picture for the population that we serve. And what that is, is you generally can predict the neighborhoods that our patients come from, and they are all uh, majority like disinvested communities. Disinvested communities means that they are coming from places where long ago, I should say, probably way back in the 1930s, and I would say right after the Great Depression of 1929, and our president was trying to resuscitate America from that economic disaster and in creating pathways for people to build wealth. He created wealth building through home ownership for people, but only for white people, not for black people, not for brown people. And so it sort of, over the next several decades, even until now, because it's quite self-perpetuating, has created two distinct socioeconomic populations. So when you look at disinvested communities, you already know, no matter what you're measuring, if you're measuring it demographically, you already know who's going to do work. So they have worse health outcomes lower opportunities for education attainment, lower incomes, all those things because it's been structurally created in a way that they are not able to reach their full potential. And so trust is a very big deal when it comes to this population. And being an ER doctor for so many years and having established relationships with people to be able to understand the root causes for why they are perpetually doing unwell, why their diseases are perpetually out of control, no matter how many times they come in and you know we reset them to baseline clinically, we're discharging them right back to what's driving it because they can't prioritize health when they're prioritizing survival. So lots of people talk about things like Tuskegee and all these points in, in history, but it's how people treat it every single day. It's what happened two hours ago when you came, you know, to the hospital. Did somebody sort of disrespect you in some way or did someone pass a judgment on you or just anything that made you feel less than welcome and less than respected? And so trust is a, is a very, very big deal. So is it really about patient trust or is it about health systems being trustworthy? It is the latter because patients are human after all. There's nothing that inherently in them that would make them be born and not without trust. It's life experience. So can I ask you, and, and either one of you can weigh in on this, taking to your point about um, the, the institutions and structures that have the people live in and experience every day, the spaces they move through that contribute to making them unhealthy, explain to me why then when you go into a medical space to seek care, would people not trust that institution that they're coming to seek care for? Is it the people in the institution? Is it the way that they're oppressed? Well, I mean, you know, the people who work in hospitals are just a, a, a segment of the population. They're also the people you encounter outside the hospital. I think there's a bit of a dominant narrative about who people are and uh, why they're like how they are. And, you know, there's this notion of pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps and things without any sort of critical analysis or really just understanding and, and awareness of 
the fact that people are like they are due to structural inequities. And it's a tricky thing because I don't care whether you work in a hospital or not. You're a human being. You live in a culture. A lot of things are driven by a dominant narrative. And so people can look at inequities for decades, but they're not alarmed by it because it looks normal to them. And the reason it looks normal to them, when you see people who don't do well, you know, it's predictable who will not do well, that looks normal to people. And because it's the status quo. And so like, as I read in a health affairs article where it said, you know, structural racism is such that it looks like the natural order of things to people, even well-meaning people. And so, you know, not only do you recognize an inequity, you recognize when you just might be contributing to it in some way or complicit in it. And so that's why I like this whole conversation that has come up since 2020 about trust. Because so many people were surprised by it because they did not interrogate or question the things that, you know, why there were disparities in people. And if somebody sort of, I don't know, attempted or mentioned an opportunity or a notion of trying to close those gaps, you know, people will tell you, you can't boil the ocean or something like that, you know, but it's a dominant narrative, just to answer the question, and everybody is subject to it when, you know, when you don't know any better. That's awesome, and I, I love the, the idea that people think that if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or it's your fault somehow because you're not working hard enough or trying hard enough, or you're not, you know, you're, you're lazy or whatever, other, you wouldn't have this problem, or you could fix it yourself. Not that there's institutional things that are, are keeping you from ever being successful. Dr. Cynthia, is there anything you'd like to add to that? And also, could you tell us a little bit about the population and the community that you serve at Brookside and what issues they might have around trust that you've seen historically or currently? Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks, Cheryl. So you're, to the first question about health systems being trustworthy, I think it's it's got to go both ways. And healthcare systems have to be worthy of our patients' trust. And and we've seen time and again that it hasn't been the case. And, and we're talking about centuries, as you know, Theo was talking about, centuries of unequal treatment and outright harmful treatment that continues to this day. And that's not something that we're going to correct overnight. To talk specifically about our patients here and, and the, the, the community that we serve at Brookside, Trust is key to our work. We work with predominantly immigrant patient populations, as I said, predominantly from Dominican Republic, but also from many other countries in Latin America. Um, and, and trust is it's about walking into the building and seeing yourself represented in the photos and the art on the wall. This is something that we did with our oral history project and our mural project at Brookside. It's about speaking the same language as uh, the person greeting you at the front door, as a medical assistant taking your vital signs and your care provider. At Brookside, our staff and providers are bilingual and bicultural, many coming from the same communities of the patients that we serve. And this is key to, to building trust at an institution. Trust at Brookside is why we have started to bring specialists to Brookside, for example, so that our patients don't have to navigate the unfamiliar main campus at the Brigham to receive their specialty care. We know from data that often they won't make it at another site, but they will come to Brookside and that's because of trust, because they've developed trust over time with their provider and with their care team here. That's why during COVID, we brought COVID testing to our parking lot in the early days of the pandemic. And not just testing, but we paired it with resources that our patients need, like healthy vegetables and fruits. And that's why we became a site to offer COVID vaccines when they first came out, because we knew you know, we needed to offer this to our, to our patients in our community because trust is a big issue, right? Immigrant populations have a lot of reasons not to trust. They have a lot of reasons to fear, especially at times 
And, you know, in recent years, when immigration authorities have been cracking down, when the federal government was threatening to use someone's um, use of public resources like food stamps or mass health against their green card application. At these times, institutions and providers of care like Brookside really needed to be more vocal and more visible to our communities. We had to make it clear to all that we serve that we believe that healthcare is a human right. And we had to take distinct measures to connect our patients to the, the services that they need. And, and that's what we did. We, we connected patients to free legal support and counseling and, and really made it visible. We you know, were um, kneeling for social justice, kneeling for racial justice on, on Washington Street here during the months. And, and that was important for us to, to, to take that stand and to show our community. Maintaining a community's trust can't be a static affair, I think. And, you know, institutions really, we have to continue to earn patients' trust every day. Ooh, that's really true. Dr. Thea, could you please tell us about some of the things that BMC is doing or has done to earn patients' trust, which is one of the reasons I'm very proud to work here. I'm going to start off with one thing that makes them smile when I think about it. And I just thought about it and I was smiling. Uh, with the first time I start, started seeing the all of us table downstairs in the Shapiro lobby, I was really curious about it because there always was a crowd around that table. You know, I thought it was interesting given the sort of trepidation, you know, our patients and people in our communities have around research and things like that. I thought it was interesting that there was always a crowd around that table. And, you know, once I could like peer through the thing and see that there was somebody who looked like them at the table, I mean, that in and of itself, in my mind, was probably the one thing that one, one powerful thing, at least, at least one of the things. There are probably many other things. I don't know because I never asked the patients that question. And so, you know, what I think is not valid without asking them, but seeing someone, you know, who looked like them at the table, probably what, you know, one of the things that uh, attracted them there. But other things we've done, and I'll start with a pandemic because uh, that's sort of like we went through an intentional organizational transformation and towards equity by first of all doing an internal look but the, at our own selves and you know looking across looking at data across our entire enterprise and making commitments with accountability on closing identified gaps but one of the things we knew was you know when the vaccines came on online we sort of did surveys and digital queries and things like that out in the community to see how inclined our patients were to take the vaccine and what we saw was that patients of, of color were disinclined to take the vaccine. But what I think we did not expect is, you know, we did a similar sort of inquiry internally of our employees, and it was the exact same. They were no more inclined to take it than our patients were. And so we started to host Zooms, and that was led by Vice President of Community Engagement and External Affairs, Trina uh, Martin. And working with the doctors and, and, and others here in the hospital, all of us, what she did was reached out to lots of leaders and community members and starting with faith-based leaders. And we hosted all of these Zooms, lots and lots of Zooms. And we had two intentions on the Zoom. One was to answer the questions that the community had about the vaccine to assuage you know, any angst they, they might have. And the second thing was to ask them because when the, when the vaccination sites came online, they weren't proximal to, the, to where they lived. Although where they lived is where the worst outcomes were happening. And we asked them to, you know, to help us figure out how to provide access. Like, where should these sites be? What should they look like? 
How should they operate? What should they feel like to people? And our strategy team, our operations people actually walked in the community with, with Trina and these leaders walking through different buildings and different geographic locations to sort of like create and set up operations there. And they were able to have like six sites in, the, in different communities. And we, we were able to vaccinate that targeted population at four and a half times the state did. And we could not have done it without the state because they were our partner in supplying all of, you know, all of the vaccine. And we also had people walking the neighborhoods, you know, people who lived in the neighborhoods, walking in the neighbor in the neighborhoods, knocking on doors, being ready to, you know, give people vaccinations or, or on site. You know, they did mobile units. I mean, we had multiple different languages to speak with people, to be able to communicate well with people. So we actually have adopted that model of community first, patient first for everything. When we have a question about something, why something's not working, you know, generally, you know, we all go in the room and say, we're going to fix this problem that involves those people in this room. But now we start with those people because it's the easiest thing to do and you give yourself the greatest opportunity to achieve at, at the highest possible uh, level that you can achieve. And it's been working for us beautifully ever since then because we've used it for all other types of things. We now have this thing called Equity Partnership Network that Trina created that is about 100 people you know, that help us with all kinds of decisions um, that we make in the hospital. That's a lot of work. <laughs> That's amazing. It's just, it's just amazing. And I, I just want to wrap my head around this idea of mistrust. I mean, could you both weigh in on, if you had a magic wand, what could you do in healthcare? What would you like to see in healthcare happen to help us overcome reasons that patients may not either trust healthcare settings or healthcare research? Sure. Yeah. I mean, medical mistrust, right, as, as Theo was mentioning, it, it stems from all the ways that we failed our communities of color, right? And this is across the community across the country. And, and, and that can be from with, withholding life-saving treatments and dollars to purposely making communities of color sicker, right? We've talked about this. And, and that's where the mistrust is coming from. And, and medical institutions, we are subject to the same systems of structural racism that we see across the country. And, and so if I had a magic wand to correct that, I, I mean, I think the, the first step is to acknowledge at institutions to really take a deep dive and acknowledge and look at where we fail and where we continue to fail. And then and then think critically about how we can improve. And I, and I think that that means not just thinking about healthcare, but also thinking about everything else that that affects a person's health and wellness. So thinking about social determinants of health, right? This is something that we've been talking a lot about, but we really need to take a deep dive in that and be active participants in that, right? And advocates for that. So when when we see that housing in in Boston and it is unequal, right? And is causing harm to our patients because, you know, they are exposed to to allergens and things that are making their asthma worse and and pollution, we need to be able to address that. When we have patients who are coming to see us and we can't address their medical issues because they are dealing with homelessness and unstable housing, we need to be able to to address that. And so I think weaving a magic wand, I think having better ways to to address that as a community, as an organization, as a healthcare institution, um, it would be amazing if we could say, if we could house every single patient of said every single patient, every single individual in Boston, right? Um, and be able to say that we can provide them safe, affordable housing with healthy food, with safe places to walk and exercise and play outside every day. That would be my wish. I think if we could really get down to the 
the, the preventive measures of how do we make our communities healthier, then we can we can begin to prevent a lot of disease and prevent a lot of downstream costs that, that we are then seeing in healthcare. Thank you, Dr. Cynthia. Dr. Thea, I know that uh, BMC has started dressing housing for some of the patient population. Would you like to elaborate on what Dr. Thea, uh, Dr. Cynthia said, as well as talk about BMC as to answer the question as well? Absolutely. Everything that she said is 100% correct, first of all. I think, you know, I, I think maybe a few things, maybe five things I can think of that I would change about, about healthcare. I, I think I would start, number one, with medical education, because, you know, medicine is, um, what's the word, insular. Medicine is insular and fairly rigid, you know, in its thinking. And even as we are becoming more aware and evolved on the clinical end or outside, you know, farther down the chain from education, which is where you start, even though we may become more aware, if the education that people are starting out with is not changing, you know, the pipeline is sort of preventing us from reaching the full potential of uh, a transformative model of thinking and doing. So I think, you know, medical education is a, a little bit of a drag or a threat to us being able to achieve as, as well as we could. That's number one. That needs to change, you know, and it needs to change in that there should be education, full education to add context to people's diseases and, you know, why people don't do well, how these things, how people got that way to begin with, how certain populations don't thrive and why they haven't thrived. I mean, we need a better education. And I would say probably pre-medical education, regular education before you even go into a, a professional school like that. And secondly, I would think within all systems that encounter people, you know, people should be aware and have training to understand the types of environments and experiences that, that people experience in life. And so to do that, I think those people, human resources and, and all of the staff, all those people should they should represent the population that we see. There should not be a predictable sort of gradation of race by title and role and that type thing. I mean, throughout the a medical encounter or any place, quite frankly, that the public uses, they should see themselves reflected among the staff at every single, every single level. The term I was trying to think of previously is trauma-informed care. Everyone should have that not only in a medical setting, but everywhere that you can encounter another human being, a person should be uh, trauma-informed. And that's like understanding the context of people's lives and understanding and being able to properly interpret what you see. And I would say like the third thing is, you know, many people from communities say nothing about us without us. And that really even includes research, for example. I am a believer that even when you are designing research, and, and in many you know cases, people already know the answer to what they're trying to study, particularly if they're trying to identify some kind of disparity. But it's not common that people design a study to identify disparities with an intentionality to close the gap built into the study. And it's almost like traumatizing for people who are the subjects of these disparities to continuously read and hear about these poor outcomes about them. It's, it, it, it's traumatizing for people to continue to hear that with no intentionality ever heard or built in the study to close these gaps. 
and change these things. I mean, people don't recognize the trauma that causes in people. I heard it on a community member. I heard it from her voice, um, from a comment she made last month, and the person was elderly. I mean, 80-some-odd years old, and she just couldn't understand why it's always been this way. And the other thing is, um, I think hospitals should understanding what the root cause is. And I really am a firm believer that, you know, again, the greatest impact of inequity has been economic exclusion. I really believe it as at the root. Just think of who does who does well and who doesn't. I mean, it's you know policies that have created economic exclusion for people. There is an opportunity for hospitals to participate in this, as you mentioned, Cheryl. Like for example, there's an organization called Healthcare Anchor Network. There are about seventy organizations in it, and we were early members of it. We have hospitals here in Boston who are also uh, members of it: Children's Hospital, MGB, and um, Bay State and Mass, uh, UMass, uh, you know, in there, there's a whole no, New England group of hospitals. But the goal and uh, intentionality of the Healthcare Icon Network is to build more inclusive, sustainable local economies in communities through hospitals being intentional in how they hire, uh, and procure, and invest. And we have been able to invest, and so have others, various different types of housing opportunities. You know, we invested in a healthcare, uh, in a healthy neighborhood equity fund that um, contributed to the building of Bartlett Place. And we did that because we were aligned with the healthy neighborhood equity fund. Uh, they were the exact opposite of redlining. They will only fund developers that present proposals to build things that provide opportunities uh, for um, affordable housing and green walking space, uh, healthy, affordable food. And, and jobs, you know, so the people who built Bartlett Place, you know, were two developers of color. Some of those units are to rent, but you can also own some, so you can build wealth that way. And they also had a retail fund on the bottom, and we invested in uh, Nubian Markets um, that's there right now through a no-interest loan. And and then we've also done gap funding, you know, for City Fresh Foods, for example, when they uh, wanted to buy uh, a place, and you know we we contributed to the funding as the Children's Hospital, as did the City of Boston, who ultimately gave them a seventeen million dollar contract for Boston Public Schools. And so there are ways to that we can actually participate and change what we're seeing coming through the door. And the last thing I will say is something that can be done on I would say a policy level. Medicaid, for example. I am not a finance person. But it seems to me that a better business model for Medicaid, one of the things that Medicaid might do, and I guess, you know, most well-meaning people would do this, you know, for example, when you see people who have food insecurity, most people want to give people food, but nobody ever interrogates or thinks about why do they not have food? And is there an opportunity for us to address that? Could we invest in something that makes them make it so that people don't need food subsidies. But many subsidies are not designed with an intentionality or an off-ramp to prosperity and self-determination. And in many cases, they are traps. Because if you try to earn more money, get a better job, or get off of them, you know, you're penalized. All of those things, in my mind, would have to change. And it is not boiling the ocean. It is just decision-making. 
Let's talk a little bit about health research now. You mentioned that uh, Boston Medical Center is a safety net hospital, but a lot of people don't know. It's also a, a research institution, which I actually didn't know that it was a recipient of a lot of NIH grants for different things that maybe you'll elaborate on. But I'd like to ask both of you if you could talk about what are the benefits to patients, researchers, and our community if we can build trust and get them to participate in health research. Dr. Cynthia, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah. I think if we can rebuild trust in health research and healthcare systems, we can begin to design systems and treatments that work for all of us. If only certain individuals are being included in research studies because communities of colors may uh, may not be approached for research or may lack the trust to engage in research, then our understanding of this disease is severely limited because we're missing huge groups of people. For example, right? Say we have a research study that only includes white male participants, then we may learn how to treat a disease in a white man. But what about all the other individuals who are not included, right? We just don't know. And so research really needs to include a much greater diversity of participants in order for us to be able to provide the best treatments for everyone. But how do we get people to trust that? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think that is what we're talking about, right? It's it's how do we how do we listen to communities to understand their concerns? How do we acknowledge their concerns, right? Acknowledge all of the, you know, historical traumas that have happened in research, right? Acknowledge that that exists and then move forward from it and say, "Hey, we really we want to include you in this. We want to think about how we can partner together to think about research in a new way, to think about research in a way that that you are included and that will also benefit you." Dr. James. I would think, and it's kind of like what we're doing now, is like bring them to the table. Even in research study design, and particularly in interpretation of results. Because the thing about quantitative research, quantitative research is, you know, what it is, and qualitative research, I've always thought, also adds context to the quantitative research. But when you're when you're doing research, I feel like uh, whatever you're thinking is driven by lots of things, curiosity and scholarship and that type thing. But there's an element to it in my mind, and I could be 100% wrong. But it just feels like to me that you know you can only you can only design and interpret based upon what you know and you know what kind of insight and knowledge you have, and particularly when you're interpreting the data. So I don't know. I just feel like. It's a better study in my mind if we have patients at the table, partners in in doing this work, and from from start to finish. You know, I just feel like it's it gives us an opportunity to do better work. Dr. Cynthia, question for you: Building trust with participants is a huge part of all of us, and that means very diverse participants: females, rural areas, senior citizens, LBGTQ, trans, just all of us, actually. Could you talk a little bit about how you got interested in all of us and what we're doing to build trust with participants, especially populations that that may not have been heard in the past or may not understand what how research has changed? Yeah, for sure. I, um, I first learned about all of us when I was a new primary care provider here at Brookside. And immediately I, I was intrigued by the name, the inclusiveness, right? All of us, right? And even more than that, though, the study team at Brookside really embedded themselves into the community of the health center. They got to know our staff. They got to know our patients, the leadership team. And from the very beginning, all of us felt more like a partnership, one and one that was more in tune with the needs of the community. The all of us team at Brookside has always been bilingual. 
and bicultural. And they've always been out there at their tables, getting to know patients as they walk in the door, saying hello. Even if somebody isn't signing up for all of us, they're talking to them, getting to know their families, getting to understand sort of what what their needs are. Um, So I think it's really about listening um, to staff and participants, sharing ideas over meals and special events, um, and actively engaging our participants as partners. So all of us um, use as community advisory panels that engage community members as decision makers and community influencers. I think that's something that many research studies have not done. And this is a way that we are really engaging our community and hearing from them and allowing them to be decision makers in in the work that's being done. And we know in health equity representation matters. And all of us has really built that trust with communities underrepresented in research by intentionally including them and listening to them. Um, and involving them um, as influencers and and decision makers. Final thoughts. I would like to ask you both, what do you hope people listening take away, whether they're a patient, a researcher, a doctor, someone in the community? What's the one thing you'd like people to take away with them who are listening today? Well, I would hope that everyone takes away that we all have an opportunity. You know, we all have a role in this, and we all have an opportunity to provide an opportunity for another person or other people that we probably thought that we had no opportunity to ever do. We can all participate in other people's um, success and peace and achievement. So I would hope that everyone takes away that they all have an opportunity to do something. And Dr. Cynthia, please. Yeah, I think along those lines, I, I hope people will come away from this conversation feeling optimistic and excited about where we can where we can go from here, right? And what we can do together. I think if we really stop and listen and see the people in front of us and really hear their stories and all of their nuances and contradictions, I think we can do so much together. Um, I think we need to be intentional about inclusion. We need to be intentional about thinking about where we've we've made mistakes and where we continue to make mistakes and 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 think about how we can do better. But I think if we really do that and we slow down and we ask the right questions and we listen and we take the time to to hear the answers, I think there's so much that we can do together. So I, I hope people will come away feeling optimistic and hopeful for for the change we can do together. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations with All of Us. I'm your host, Cheryl McLeod. And thank you to our guests, Dr. Thea James and Dr. Cynthia Soama. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on building trust within healthcare systems and health research programs. That's all for this episode, folks. We'll see you next time. Conversations with All of Us is brought to you by the All of Us Research Program in New England. All of Us is an initiative from the National Institutes of Health, Mass General Brigham, a leading integrated healthcare system in New England, and Boston Medical Center, an academic medical center with a deep commitment to clinical excellence and health equity, are working together with the All of Us Research Program to help researchers understand more about why people get sick or stay healthy. Medical research hasn't always included everyone. This is why medical research has gender, racial, and age gaps. The All of Us Research Program is working with Mass General Brigham and Boston Medical Center to change this. You can help us close these gaps and receive $25 when you complete the steps to enroll. So join All of Us today. To learn more, call 617-768-8300 or visit joinallofus.org forward slash podcast NE. Are you already a participant of the All of Us Research Program? By completing your surveys and other new activities, you may be contributing to advancing medical research that works for all of us, so stay connected. 
Log into your portal today by visiting joinallofus.org or use the All of Us app to complete new surveys. For help, call 617-768-8300. That's 617-768-8300. And thank you again for being part of the All of Us Research Program.